From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with today's leading filmmakers. It's May 25th, 2016. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. This week, we're sharing a conversation with Greek filmmaker Athena Rachel Singari, whose new film, Chevalier, opens here at the Film Society this Friday. The absurdist comedy is a send-up of masculine ego about six men on a luxurious yacht trip in the Aegean Sea who engage in an increasingly ridiculous game of one-upmanship. The film had its U.S. premiere at the 53rd New York Film Festival last fall. Tsangari was our 2015 filmmaker-in-residence, a program co-created with Jager Lacoutre. During her time here, she participated in one of our NYFF Live free talks, which are sponsored by HBO. In a wide-ranging discussion with Eric Cohn of IndieWire, she talked about how she discovered filmmaking in college, the role of movement and choreography in her work, and her unique approach to directing actors. Let's go now to their conversation. Hi there, this is Alison Goldberg from the Film Society's fundraising team. The Walter Reed Theater is turning 25 this year. Built in 1991 as a year-round home for film at Lincoln Center, the Walter Reed recently won the Village Voice Award for Best Movie Theater in New York. Manola Dargis of the New York Times agrees, calling it one of the finest movie-watching rooms in the city. In honor of the theater's birthday, we're planning some long-overdue renovations that will make this great theater even better, including a new screen, 4K and 16mm projectors, updated lighting and sound systems, and much more. But to make this all possible, we need your help. Naming a seat in the Walter Reed will help us accomplish these goals and lets you or a loved one become a permanent part of the theater's rich history. For more information about seat naming opportunities and the renovation project, visit filmlink.org slash WRT25. Before we talk about the new movie, Let's go back a ways uh, before you made any movies. Uh, you were living in Austin at a certain stage when you weren't really thinking about being a filmmaker. Is that right? Uh, yeah, actually, I was not living in Austin. I, uh, I went to Austin um, sent by the Fulbright Foundation um, to improve my English and acclimate myself because I had gotten a, a grant to study at NYU, something completely unrelated. It was performance studies. Um, and then on the first day uh, I arrived and I was um, suddenly in, the, you know, in Austin, Texas, um, in the middle of the afternoon in the summer. Um, I literally bumped into uh, Richard Linklater auditioning. Um, and I, it was too hot outside, so I just sat on that sofa, um, and he thought I had gone there to audition, and I started talking to him as if I was going to be one of his subjects, and he realized that I had not come to audition, I, w I was just resting um, from the shock of being in Austin, Texas. <laughs> um, and then, you know, next day I, I left my American history and American uh, culture uh, classes and I escaped from my dorm and I moved in with them and I became 
you know, part of the crew of Slacker. So what, what was so uh, surprising to you? And what, I mean, how did that affect you in the sense that it made you want to be more of a film person instead of, instead of exclusively performance studies? Um, I mean, I didn't know. I, I you know, completely young, uh, thinking that basically I want to do theater for the rest of my life uh, because I had come from theater, studying theater, uh, ancient Greek drama primarily. But there was something about... Uh, the way Rick and all of his crew, who were basically his best friends working, um, using people and the city around him as sort of like found footage in a way. Like everything was coming from them. All the ideas, all the... Um, you know, he, he, was, he was just basically creating this uh, ethnographic portrait of, of America. Um, in the beginning of the 90s. Uh, and there was something so organic about the way he was doing it, so effortless, um, that I thought, okay, that's great. So you just hung out with your friends and um, you, you, you're going through this very interesting process of um, b being a retriever of stories. Um, and actually that was something that uh, spoke a lot to me because um, I don't know, it's, I like when the process is, is, is very organic and it's based a lot on um, camaraderie. Um, you know, so I, sp I spent about a month and a half with them. I went to New York. Uh, I finished my master's in performance studies. Um, but at that point I had started, I, I, I bought myself a camera and I started shooting obsessively and documenting everything obsessively around me. And then I knew that I was abducted. And um, when you were documenting things, were, were you actually trying to turn it into a film, or were they no, just no, no? It was phase one, which was, and actually that was something that Rick had taught me. You know that in the beginning, just try to see the same things because I am an obsessive voyeur and people watcher and obsessive question asker, if that's a word. Um, so he said, you know, you, you, you have what it, you know, you just keep asking questions, so you keep just staring at people, so you'll be fine. Just get the camera and see how this translate looking through the lens. And no, I, I, it was sort of like my tool, my new tool. I, and I actually didn't do anything with that footage. Um, ever. Uh, but when I, I finished uh, at NYU, um, he said, you know, come to Austin. It's, uh, it's, there's a great film school and there's a community here. And also it's going to be much easier for you to make films. You don't have to struggle so much if you stay in New York. So was it easier? Yes. It was amazing, actually. It, it, it was also... Um, you know, I moved to Austin in uh, 1993, uh, and that's when it was really becoming a, you know, quite a hub of of uh, cinema uh, industry, and at the same time, acute cinephilia, which was uh, very much instigated by the Austin Film Society. But then, you know, I'm so, because I'm so competitive, 
I said, okay, so you have the Austin Film Society, I'm going to make something else, I'm going to make Cinema Texas, so I'm just going to go much more avant-garde than you. Um, so a part of us at school, we created a film festival called Cin Cinema Texas, which ended up becoming quite a, a groundbreaking uh, short film, sonic arts performance festival, where basically lots of the strange films that couldn't get into any of the festival, they would come to Cinema Texas. So we actually, and we were students, you know, it was all volunteer, and it was our way of, of uh, having a parallel film school, you know, by watching all of these shorts that people were making from all over the world and educating ourselves. So what sort of films were you watching? For example, I think w we, sho we showed um, the first short film by Apichat Pong, Verzatokul, um, the first short film by Miranda July, um, the first short film by Kelly Reichardt, um, the first short film by uh, Gomez. Uh, you know, so it was great cinema, you know, and lots of these filmmakers actually, including us, who were students then, but then became filmmakers. Um, it, you know, it was, it was a, a very essential way of learning cinema. So you say, you know, you're competitive, but when did that start, sort of translate into actually making movies? I mean, Linkletter at that point was turning them out year after year, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, I made the slow business of going, uh, which was my th thesis film in a way. Uh, it, it started as... I made the short, my very first short called uh, Fit, F-I-T, about a woman who uh, can't fit things inside other things. That's literally the story. Um, and that was nominated for a Student Academy Award. And from that I got some money. And with that very little money, um, I made the feature, which was um, um, a series of shorts uh, that we, we would shoot in hotel rooms in different cities around the world. And each episode was um, an adaptation of a, or a, my reworking of a certain genre. So again, that was another kind of school. You know, when, when you come from Greece, um, you're not, you're, and you're a girl, um, it's, it's very, difficult to think that you're ever going to be a filmmaker. It doesn't even cross your mind. And you second guess and you double guess and you test yourself, or at least I did forever, until I thought that I was ready to, to make something. Um, it, it took some time, you know, so it, I felt like I really needed to earn um, a screening of my movie. Um, so it's... Yeah, it was quite a, uh, a fun, but at the same time, very um, sometimes painful process, you know, to get into the point where I feel like, yes, I, up until today, I, I don't say that I'm a film director, I say that I'm a filmmaker. That means that, and I really believe in that, that um, cinema is, is um, is something beyond an an art. It's 
it's for us who are in it it's it's uh, addiction is is a religion it's it's um and somehow we have to earn it with every single film. Well, and then your second film, Attenberg, obviously got a whole bunch of attention on the festival circuit, and it speaks to a lot of the influences that you're talking about here. On the one hand, it's experimental in the way that it explores human relationships. On the other hand, there are familiar genre elements there. It's a coming-of-age story, mm -hmm. or it's a drama about a friendship, and so on. How did sort of the, you know, bring all of that together in a way that people responded to possibly sort of affect how you saw yourself as a filmmaker that this film got so much traction all over the world? Um, it, it took a long time between the slobbish of going and, and um, Attenberg. And, you know, everyone was asking why it took me so long um, and but for me, everything that you do in between, so for example, you know, I moved back to Greece after Austin and um, we started a, our own production company, which was an extremely important, almost revolutionary um, breakthrough point for, for, for our, our generation because we really took the fate into our hands. Um, so, for example, in Greece, up until very recently, um, in order to make a film, you had to wait in line behind, you know, 99% men of um, much older age who had to make their films. And then if there was a little bit of money left, then they would be given to us. Um, so, you know, having come from America and seeing that actually you can make a movie for very little money, and you don't have to be relying on the state, and you don't actually really need the state to come say, you, my daughter, you're like good enough, so I'm gonna give you the huge amount of like 60,000 euros to make your oeuvre. Um, you know, Yorgos, um, for example, he was a very successful commercial director. I had just finished doing um, the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games in Athens, um, which was like a huge deal. And you don't say. Yeah, you know, going from the slobbish of going that, that cost it five bucks, and, you know, to uh, managing a budget, you know, that was millions, and be the director and producer of that was, you know, hallucinating, um, to say the least. You know, to basically be telling, to, you know, to be speaking with Barco um, and actually working with Barco to create the first high def projector so they would project my handmade videos <laughs> uh, in the opening ceremony was incredible. And then I realized that this way, it really doesn't matter what kind of budget you have. It, it matters if you have like a very precise vision for it and good sense of uh, finances. Well, you mentioned a couple of different things here. So, but to finish my thought, at that point, Yorgos, who I met when I went back to Greece, was an extremely successful commercial director. Um, I was considered very, very uh, successful. I also had um, a film, The Slobbies of Going, which had a very nice festival life, um, unlike uh, my peers in Greece who, 
you know, sh there was no one to really help them get the films out in the festivals. There was not like a gateway. Uh, that was really before everyone got distribution into their hands. So even at that place, it was impossible for us to get our film funding through the Greek Film Center because we did not belong in that, you know, elite group of established uh, with credentials, according to, you know, Greek cinema. Um, so we just did it ourselves. And that was Kineta, his first film. Um, and, you know, we managed to get it out completely by ourselves uh, to festivals. Um, and, you know, that was the beginning of basically a new way of producing. And, you know, talking, everyone asks us about, you know, how come uh, our films have this particular way of um, delivery of the actors, uh, this relationship between reality and fantasy. Um, and I should say that this is actually something that has existed forever in Greek literature and Greek theater. Um, the fact that we were in charge and completely control of our scripts and we didn't have to go through any committees actually liberated this kind of, um, of writing that actually rooted to very old you know, Greek tradition that you could see in experimental theater, for example, for years in Greece. You just couldn't see it on cinema. So it was liberated. Right, but I can imagine this, this might be why you, you were sort of frustrated when people saw this as, as a new wave that, ha that came out of nowhere in a way. Yeah, completely, because I mean, there is no parthenogenesis. Of course it didn't come from nowhere, it's just that for the first time, um, a, a different kind of Greek cinema uh, was extroverted, you know? We've, we figured out a way out of the borders of a country that was, uh, you know, quite um, esoteric. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> to say the Now least. it's not. Now it's, you know, uh, completely public and um, big news everywhere for different reasons. <laughs> So should we, should we kill off the, the term Greek weird wave once and for all? Yes, can you kill it right now? Let's just make a. An can agreement. you just put an embargo? <laughs> can you just, tomorrow at IndieWire, say kill Greek weird wave, like in huge bold letters, and then just send it to everyone? In fact, don't have anything else on IndieWire tomorrow, just have that. Well, I, think it, I think it might, you know, um, make a difference. What should we call it instead? Greek cinema, yeah, as a starter, yeah. Which brings us to the latest example, Chevalier. It's a fascinating movie, in, in, as a, as people have said, an entirely male cast, all set on a boat, except for a few scenes on a beach. Uh, tell us a little bit about kind of formulating this movie in particular, and you know what sort of themes you were trying to get at with the very particular scenario that we're dealing with here bunch of guys on a boat competing to be the best at something. In everything. In everything. Um, it, it's a companion piece to The Capsule, which is a film I did after Attenberg. Not very many people have seen that. It's a short film that was sort yeah. of commissioned. Right? It was a commission by an arts collector. 
um, and it was uh, made with an all-female cast. And again, it was about power and control and how it feels to actually trying to basically gain your position in, in your immediate milieu and maintain it um, and become the best and, b and be rewarded by that. It, to me, this is, this is very basic instinct of survival that you have, that we have, and also a, a daily ritual in our lives everywhere. Um, it was so interesting to actually see all these amazing actresses which came from completely different backgrounds, different nationalities. We were in an uh, old 18th century villa in the island of uh, Hydra in Greece. And it, we were there for four days. Uh, they didn't know anything about the script and everything about this uh, experience was to see which one of them was going to um, to be the best in replacing the headmistress of of the institute, so the so-called institute? The headmistress was played by Ariane Labed. Um, the 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 great experiment that ha that happened in that villa, uh, and it was an experiment of of um, human behavior, it was, you know, it was something that, that um, I think we all remember with, it was very interesting, it was very intense, and we all learned a lot, um, and it's also very funny, which is uh, it, we yeah. feel like you're flexing another muscle in that in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's always fun, and the thing is that I think casting in everything I do is ninety percent of my directing. So, you know, all the girls who arrived on these boats like at dawn to participate in this film, which was also like an experiment on human behavior. Um, I knew that first of all they were going to get along with each other, that it was never going to become nasty and weird. And also that, yeah, we're going to create something together. So the, the collaborative aspect is extremely important. And then after that, I said, okay, what would happen if a similar thing, uh, if I tried a similar thing with, with um, a cast of men, very, very strong men, Greek men, um, with different hues of machismo and different hues of fragility. So it took me actually a long time uh, to cast. And casting was not at all about reading lines, it was conversations. And sometimes I would have this conversation three or four times until I decided that it would be him. But that was the only thing between my casting director and myself. Um, the only thing we, we were looking for are men who were very strong and very fragile at the same time, and they were not afraid of their female side. Mm -hmm. um, and in the end, it was, you know, they were, they, they, it, was, it was very hard. I, I went to the set thinking, uh, what did, really, what did I get myself into? I might get lynched in the end of all of this. Um, 
But no, it was it was great. I learned a lot, and it was a challenge. But in every film that I do, uh, I it's a challenge. I put a new challenge, and that was a challenge. You know, to how to wage this little uh, expedition on a on a boat in the middle of the sea for forty days. Well, and and what's interesting about it is that it's it's a very accessible movie, I think, to a lot of different kinds of sensibilities. Some people might see a comedy, other people might see a study of human behavior, and it, it operates on both of those levels. There's a third level that I think is, is very easy to get into once you think about it in a certain context, which is, is this an, some sort of a statement on the Greek crisis or what's been going on in that sense? Because you have a bunch of powerful guys in a room bickering about stuff and not getting anything done. <laughs> and it sounds a lot like what we've been reading in the, the headlines. So. What do you think? Okay. <laughs> um, yes. So we're not, we're not getting into that side of the, the, the thematics <laughs> in that sense. I, I, I don't like those very, very, you know, you critics always do that, you know, <laughs> this like very, very, very tidy, you know, uh, analogies and correlations between um, cause and effect or between, especially when it comes to national cinema, um, it, sometimes it's way, you know, a bit too tidy in terms of classifying it and finding similarities with the political, social situation. I work very instinctively, instinctively uh, and I am, a, I am a filter of my country. You know, everything goes through me every day. Um, I, didn't, I didn't wake up and say, okay, I'm gonna get you, you fuckers. You know, you, I hate you, you know, and I, you have completely ruined my trust in everything I believe in terms of my country, in terms of government, in terms of, um, you know, the left party, which, you know, I grew up um, a member of that uh, and really believing in revolution. Um, it, it should have been a huge deal that the left party suddenly is in the government, but it doesn't make any difference. Um, so yeah, yeah, there is. You, if you get me started, you know, I can tell you a yeah. lot. But I didn't. I didn't wake up saying, "Okay, I'm gonna make um, um, an allegory," because it's not. It's not just about Greece, right? It is. We, we're living through times which is the end of ideology and the end of politics everywhere, and it's. That's what's going on. So I can't say that this boat. Um, is a Greek boat. Could be anywhere. Yeah. And now you're in New York, so you're spending some time here thinking about another movie, and you're actually going to move beyond the uh, Greek borders for, for this one. You want to tell us a little bit mm -hmm. about what, the, what that process has been like? Yeah, it's, it's actually um, really, really great. It, I believe in fate. You know I'm Greek. Uh, <laughs> So, um, um, I've, I started work, you know, when you start, when you're editing a movie, um, and especially Chevalier was an extremely difficult movie for me to do. It was the first time I had done uh, dialogue, you know, where actually people talk a lot, 
more than like a few lines in each scene, um, and uh, with an ensemble cast. And it was really like in the editing work, you know, trying to compose a symphony between instruments that were not necessarily uh, playing the same piece. Um, so I, sometimes I just wanted to just give up. And the, the great thing about that is that you get so, um, um, you, you get so desperate that you start thinking about your next movie. Um, so I started thinking about a movie that was completely the opposite of that. So it's, a, it's an action film, it's a neo-noir caper uh, with, a, with a group of international crooks. Cities are very important to me in everything I do, space in general, uh, urban environments. So it is in a way an homage to cities. Um, and again, like a, a re, you can say a re, working re, reworking yeah. of of um, of a action noir genre, um, and actually uh, one of the cities is New York. So when when the film society um, told me that I was going to be the resident, I was just you know I thought okay it's fate because. It just now this movie needs to happen. So it actually I think that I really moved on, th really writing this film because of the of the residents. Uh, and now in between, you know, I have Chevalier, so I I travel a lot to festivals. So I'm not throughout uh, in New York here, but even when I come back, um, uh, and I have like three days here, I basically. I just walk, uh, location scouting, and I have, you know, I already, you know, I have, if the movie is made, I have maybe like 50% of my locations already. Wow. Well, I won't ask you if it's an allegory. Um, why don't we take some audience questions? I know we have a microphone here. We have time for maybe one or two. There's one here. Hey, um, can you talk about your process in conceiving and then shooting the... Um, like sort of dance sequences in Attenberg, the the walking sequences. Do you know what I'm talking about? The dance sequences. The the scenes where the where the two women are wa are walking hand in hand. Uh huh. Yeah. Did you? I mean, I'm curious. Like, did you, you collaborate with? You want me to spoil the, the magic? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to yeah, do that. I do. <laughs> well, movement is a big part of all your films. Maybe you could talk just a little bit about sort of choreographic movement as That's a storytelling device. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm joking. Um, it's yeah. In in um, in every of my films, um, from starting from my very sh my f very first short films until Chevalier and in White Knuckles, which is the next one, um, choreographing movement of the bodies and the faces and even movement of the voices is extremely important to me. Um, I. I almost consider, like in my head, when I set up every film, I, I think of it as a musical without music. You know, without music set to the movements or the voices. But I always compose it as a musical. Um, so in Attenberg, I, I really, the easy answer is, I could have shown these two girls uh, who were the freaks of the town, 
being freaks or I could have found another way, working always a few steps away from realism um, to be like the renegades, the freaks, the, the weird ones uh, that did not belong in the society of that little town. So that's why I figured out that maybe they could do those silly walks um, and uh, we watch lots of Monty Python, uh, which I adore. And I actually, every time I start making a movie, I watch Monty Python and Buster Keaton. And that's a really huge inspiration for the way my actors will eventually translate those movements into something else. You might not see it, but that's how we always start. So there's always some stuff that we watch. Um, yeah, and then also each one of them picked an animal that they were throughout the movie in their heads uh, from the David Attenborough documentaries, which we watched also in the rehearsals. Like as, as a, you know, I know you're an actor and a director, and I think that it's important when you go to, a, to rehearsals or when you start a movie to have a, you know, a pantry full of stuff that's your stuff that you're going to share. And it's going to create the tools by which actors and crew will uh, work with. So it's this sharing of gifts is a very important part of the process. Petra van Ger, hello. I would be interested, um, how do you get your ideas and the vision you've been talking about is this the idea and is this the same in the beginning of the film and in the end? Um, I don't know how I get the ideas. Uh, obviously, with great difficulty because I don't make very many movies. Um, it takes a long time uh, for me. But that's okay because I, I, um, I don't really want to see making movies as something that I have to crank out, you know, that, you know, somehow time or history or my peers or my friends are waiting for me, you know, every two years to, to have a movie. So when I'm ready and when I think that I actually really have something to say and, and I know how to say it and I have found the tools for it, then I do it. Um, Attenberg was the slobbish of going was basically the accumulation of everything I had been until I was 25. So it was just like this big vomit. Um, <laughs> um, Attenberg was um, another kind of autobiography, almost like a fantasized autobiography. I was, I was neither of these two girls, but I knew uh, lots of girls like that and also Part of it was um, my anticipation of, of my father's departure. So it was, in, in that case, I, I prepared myself for when this very important man in my life was going to leave, to leave me. So instead, you know, I never went to, to do psychoana uh, psychoanalysis, and instead of that, I, I make cinema. Um, and Chevalier, uh, the capsule was, uh, again, like my fascination with this very vital question of power, 
Uh, what does it mean to have power? What, why do we want power so much? With the different nuances of power. I think in all of my films it's all about that, power and lack of power and the you know, the transitions between the different identities that, that we adopt and accumulate uh, for ourselves. Um, and actually the freedom of being able to, to change identities and to be nomads and to have breakthroughs and, and be brave enough to live a part of our lives and become someone else. So, in a way, all of my films deal with this, because I, am, I, I, I talk from personal experience. I chose very early in my life to be a nomad. Um, yeah, it, they start with images, not with stories, and then somehow, don't ask me how, they become stories. <laughs> we have time for one more question. Any particular filmmakers, uh, women filmmakers, like Lena Wartmiller, <laughs> particularly, uh, I just, that name just came to mind because she deals a lot with power, specifically among men and women. Any particular filmmakers that you admire or have influenced you? Uh, I ch I, it, it, this is a tricky question and I'll give you a tricky answer because I, I don't, uh, I, you know, I don't. I don't identify. I don't. I, I don't di identify myself as a woman filmmaker, but as a filmmaker. So, um, I, you know, I have lots of role models and lots. We are the sum of our influences, and especially after, um, you know, a century and a half of cinema, when you make cinema and when you basically watch every day, half of our lives, um, half of my autobiography is what I have watched because that's what I do half of my life, if not more. So, yeah, I mean, and every, every week it changes. You know, I, I have like my pantheon um, of movies, not so much as or filmmakers, who are sort of like, as I said, like my own little pantry. Uh, but talking about women filmmakers, um, yeah, Chantal Ackerman. She's important. And it's obviously a powerful time to bring that up. Um, well, we've got your life story. We killed off the term Greek weird wave. We've accomplished a lot, and now it's time for Chevalier to screen. So thanks for being here, and thanks for sticking around. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. 
The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>